0: You'll Nick Dartha. <laughs> and you, Sunshine. You can't arrest me. I'm I'm an architect. There's my Porsche. <laughs>
1: Welcome to episode 12 of the Minder podcast in association with Minder.org. I am your host, Paul Stenning. In this show, we have part two of an interview with Andrew Payne, writer of 12 Minder episodes, including some real classics, several of which we discuss here in detail, including Back in Good Old England, Goodbye Sailor, Dreamhouse and Minder on the Orient Express. Andrew talks about appearing on the set of Minder and what happened when his very first episode was being filmed. He also mentions the dissatisfaction he felt at the time and what happened there. He mentions George Cole's filming habits, as well as the feature-length Minder film which was ultimately made for TV. What if Arthur and Terry had gone to Venice? Andrew talks about his most memorable episode and the reasons why. The clue is Richard Griffiths who would also feature Andrew's acclaimed comedy-drama, Pie in the Sky. The clips you'll hear come from some of the shows Andrew mentions, but I also wanted to include a few from the last video show episode, which we did not get time to talk about. I feel this is quite an overlooked episode, and it also turned out to be Andrew's last credit for Minder. It was a credible concept and also featured the two storylines running throughout the episode, which Andrew does talk about as a favourite method of creating Minder scripts. This was also an episode with a tremendous cast, and we'll talk more about it in a future show. For now, it is back to Andrew Payne for part two of Minder on the Hornsey Express, or a nice little earner, on this episode 12 of the Minder podcast in association with Minder.org. websites or when you first started did you meet the cast members to get a feel or were you ever on set or anything like that?
2: Occasionally, very rarely. Well I tell you, okay. The the um I mean not really, no, I mean I I mean once in the Blue Moon. I mean, you know, on location on the set, they're incredibly busy, you know. Um, and once once you've been working on something for a certain amount of time, you the script gets you know the script is ready. You know you're there really. Do you know what I mean? There's not much you can add. I mean socially, it's nice to turn up now and then say hello, and then there'd be the wrap party and that sort of thing. But really, a it's incredibly boring because um, uh, you've got nothing to do. I mean you're the kind of writer you know you're regarded with a sort of degree of suspicion. So if you by the crew, you know, and and you trip over things and get in the way, and and everybody's very busy, uh, uh, and and everything takes forever, you know, um, and you watch, you know, somebody walk across the road, get into a car five times, and you're ready to go home, you know. The very first, well, I used to live when I wrote the first one, desserts on the restaurant. I was living in Hornsey Lane, and. To the top of Crouch End, and I used to walk every morning down to Crouch End to get coffee and, you know, sandwich or whatever at lunchtime. And uh so, I get the call from Linda: "We're going to make your episode great." They started shooting quite soon. I thought. There was no read through. We never had a read through online. Uh, I had no idea about where or they were shooting or what the schedule was. Uh, well, I was just delighted that they were doing it. So I walked down one morning to Crouch End to, you know, my usual kind of, my usual routine. And I go down, I walked down, wasn't there? I walked down the hill to Crouch End, pub on the right called the Railway, which I used to go to when I was, this is where I was, I'm still living where I was an art student. you know what I mean? So there's a weird kind of, kind of worlds colliding. But it got even weirder that morning because opposite the railway was a, a Greek restaurant. And I'm walking down and there's kind of all this kind of, there's all this stuff going on outside the restaurant, you know. There's kind of like, you know, caravans and trailers and people running around. And I thought, what the fuck's that? What's going on? You know, and I walk down and I see George Cole sitting in a chair by the, you know, smoking a cigar and looking at uh, the racing post, you know, which is what his thing was, you know. And I thought, oh, my God, this must be, of course, it's the Great Restaurant. It's my episode, you know. And I was just incredibly embarrassed. So I crossed the road and went down and got my coffee sandwich and walked back, <laughs> went back home and let, you know, I, I couldn't, I don't know why, I just didn't, I thought it's, I sort of thought it's nothing to do with me in a weird kind of way. And I thought, if I go along and say, hi, you know, um, this is my, I wrote this, you know, I'm sure, you know, they people say, yes, yeah, so, and, excuse me, do you mind you know, we need that. You're in the. I don't know. It was weird. It was kind of quite, quite a weird experience.
1: It sounds remarkably professional for a young person with the first big TV script
2: to be that humble <laughs> or shy or. I was. I was. It's. 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 it's it was very strange. I mean, I look back on it with with kind of degree of embarrassment. Really. I mean, it's so stupid. You know. But. Um, But that's how, I guess, the point of that story is... I mean, because when I was trying to write the first one, I really got very down about my my inability to to write a script that worked, you know. And I suppose when eventually I did write a script that worked, and not only did I manage to do that, they then wanted to film it. I suppose it was all such a kind of unlikely... By the time I'd been through the mill on that one, it, it... it was so unexpected and so quick. Maybe I just didn't kind of quite trust it. You know, I thought it was a sort of, you know, a weird hallucination or something. But, you know, and if I, if I went, if I kind of went and involved myself and went over to them, and said hello and introduced myself, it would somehow break the spell, you know, just let them get on with it, you know.
1: How about when you saw it
2: on TV for the first time? That again was a huge learning curve. I was invited to by the producers to go and look at a cut of it down at the um, production base, which I can't remember that was it, somewhere quite weird. It was down, uh, it's down in Hammersmith, I think, at the time. And I was quite, I was, I was rather critical of it, I'm afraid. So, you know, from the kind of the humble, embarrassed bloke who walked around the location without, I then became a sort of, you know, super critical writer who doesn't approve of what's been done with the the script. And it was quite, Roy Ward Baker did it, who was an old hand, you know. It was quite pedestrian, I thought, you know. And there was one or two things when I thought, you know, I mean, and, and again, it's I, I didn't really understand the problems with schedules and stuff like that. But there were certain things when I just thought there should be a close-up there of that, and that that's you know, and why is this just this whole scene being played out in a wide shot? Um, and what's important in this bit of in this scene is what Terry's doing with you know, or well, the guy with a knife who's going to stab Terry, or whatever. And it's it was I just thought it was very direct in a very pedestrian way. So. Which I'm afraid I said, you know, and I think they were slightly taken aback, you know, because I think I was supposed to probably say, "Oh my God, it's marvelous! I'm so excited! My first, you know, blah blah blah," and there I was saying, you know, "Why did he cut away then?" When he, sh-, you know, blah blah blah. And the the lesson there is that, I mean, is this boring? I mean, this is yeah. is this it? Is Not whatsoever.
3: Look at those lions. Ah uh, yes, sir. one is a little bit foxed round the arse here. It's not the only one, is it, either? There
0: he is. Oh no, I think they're terribly witty. Witty? No, Arthur said that. He said, My word, what witty little lions he said, didn't you, mate? Shut up.
3: Yes, I'll have them. I'm very fond of putting things like that
0: indoors. What on your mantelpiece? Something like that, yes. Well, oh, Martin. Right, Arthur, I'll have the gates, the fireplace, and the lions.
3: I'm afraid that those urns are not for me at all, though. Those
0: urns are sensational. Sensational?
3: No. Nope. No, nope. I don't know. They're somehow deeply naff.
0: Naff? Naff?
3: You heard what the man said. Those are naff urns. Now, help Mr Miller's man load his stuff onto his van. Nigel, word inside. Certainly, Arthur. I'll see you later down the winchester, all right? I do acquiesce with you about the urns, Nigel. But you're quite happy about the rest of the gear? Fabulous stuff, Arthur.
0: Oh, fabulous! And such a bargain.
3: Uh, look, if anything else comes up that you want, uh, just give me a bell. You never know what's going to turn up. If someone might leave the whole house on the skip. Sorry, Tony, not with you. Terry. The name is Terry. Ter- Terry, Terry. Don't interrupt when money is changing hands. Why don't you come down to the site this afternoon, Arthur, have a look round. Something I'd like to discuss with you, that is if Terry here doesn't object. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, I'd be delighted, Nigel. Uh, any news about my premises? Nothing definite. I've had a word with the managing agents, but the thing is, these people are killing to get into these retail units. Well, oh, they would, they would. I can't wait to get my foot in the door of a free enterprise zone. Hang in there, Arthur. I'm working on it. I'll see you this afternoon. Right, Nigel. Right. Oh, hang about, hang about. Um, complimentary t-shirt. My oh. compliments. Fabulous. Ha! <laughs>
0: see
2: you know what I learned was that I mean I I have a very I mean I I see the movie the TV show whatever's was in my head when I write it I see the shots and I see the locations and I imagine wherever it is I have a very clear picture of it in my head and of course you only put down the nearest indications in the script you can't go into too much detail A because it's boring to read B because it's going to be different anyway you know Um, but you have to indicate but you you see it very clearly so it's always a shock when you see the filmed, the finished article because obviously duh it's going to be different it's going to look different you know Uh, and The trick, the thing you have to learn to do is to separate when you're looking at rough cuts and stuff, separate what is just your surprise at the difference in what you're saying from what you saw in your head, and what is what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Do do you understand what I mean?
1: Yeah,
2: I -hmm. mean, sometimes you see something and it's a shock because my god, look at that location! I've never But I mean, that's not the same as something that doesn't work because it's been cut together wrong or because it's, you know, they've missed something important. Do you know what I mean? It's, and, and early on, I made that mistake. I mean, I was quite hard on directors and producers, uh, sometimes unfairly so, because what I was balking at was, um, you didn't, you didn't make the film I saw in my head you know, uh, and then sometimes two years later I'd see something, a repeat or something and I'd watch it and I think, you know, by then i have forgotten the film I saw in my head, you know, that's gone. Uh, what remains is what they filmed and I think, actually that's really quite good. You know, what they did was really good and I wish I hadn't been so down on that, you know. But of course sometimes, you know, there are you have legitimate beefs, you know, uh, they cut things together. I mean, directing is—you know—the writer tells a story, and then the director has to tell a story. You know, the director is telling a story as well, and has to understand the story and understand, you know, what what is what is best and most entertaining and informative for the audience to be looking at at any given moment. You know, and in this scene, what's going on in this scene? this scene is an argument between two people and they're both after a certain thing or they're both trying to lie about something and once you've got that and in a good script anyway there should always be a point of the scene once you've got that then you have to tell that story you know chung, chung, you know decide the best way to tell it. And, you know and sometimes you see something you think either the director didn't get you know didn't get the story uh, or uh, didn't care, or, um, you know, sometimes there's just unusable takes. It's the end of the day, the crew are acting up, everyone's in a hurry, you know, it's, it's difficult. But I got better at that. And it got to the point where I did a series called Pie in the Sky in the 90s, which we a uh, four series. And I was the executive producer on the last two of those. And so, you know, I used to, spend, I used to go to the rough cuts. I used to go to the dubs. I used to love all that. I mean, I got to the point where I used to love all that.
1: Didn't you actually,
2: you created that yourself as well? Yeah, yeah that was, yeah, yeah. And that was, I really enjoyed that because, um, you know, because it's about storytelling. It's, it's all about storytelling. And so you look at a rough cut and you think, maybe this sequence works better if we see that first or or if we don't see that at all or i used to love the dub love the dub fantastic you know you're in this fantastic air-conditioned dark and sweet you know pick up the phone and wine is brought and fish and chips whatever you want and you can spend like an hour fiddling around with the noise a fridge makes when it closes you know kind of wrapping it up a bit i mean it's just you know it's just really, it's really good fun, and of course, you know, much more enjoyable than writing. You know, or you, you know, you, you, you feel like you're working, but you're not even to write, you know, which is always good. But that was, yeah. So, um, but I mean, I, uh, Minder was very kind of. Um, uh, there wasn't a huge amount of uh, involvement. I mean, George used to see them, you know, at rap parties and stuff. George was always very amiable, really charming man. Dennis, you know, fine. Everybody was, you know, um, it was a very kind of pleasant experience. And, of course, great to be involved in writing something that became such a, such a hit, you know.
1: Do you think your scripts got better and the – because there's some really – Classic episodes that you wrote. So, for instance, I think a lot of people would say "Goodbye Sailor," Dream yeah. House. You know, what did you think of those uh, kind of oh, um, episodes? With
2: it? Well, I think I think I, I think I did I did get better, yes, um, because I le- I was learning my craft as as the show went on. You know, because I was you know because I was a beginning. You know, it was my first job. So, I mean, I, I learned I got better at putting together a story. And I think one of the things I enjoyed was um, when I kind of twigged, you know, was having a subplot, you know, like Arthur would, um, I mean, I, my memory is hazy somewhere, but Arthur would have something like, in Goodbye Sailor it was tobacco smuggling. But there would be another problem he had, which was like something maybe rather trivial, Terry would have a problem. So you could cut between the two stories, which is a great thing to do because you're you you know, you're on this story, you're on the A story, uh, and this happens and there's a problem. But then you can cut to the B story. And by the time you get back to the A story, everything, it's all moved on. So the audience are kind of, you know, there's a sense of... Um, and what's great is when the two... Can somehow unexpectedly come together, and I'm trying to think of, a, of an example of where I where I manage that. But stuff like that, I you know, I got better at. I don't know, you know, it's just it was. I mean, I I remember with great affection um an episode called um, "Back in Good Old England," mm-hmm. uh, and I remember it because Pete Postlethwaite was in it, who was fantastic, fantastic actor. It's so great to have of him and he was just great and i just like that story because it was really about a fantasist you know who comes back to um to england because he's had to do a runner to spain
3: terry arthur des who the bloody hell is that
0: Oh, me, Jack O'Rag. Hello, my son. How are
3: you? Oily, red. Oh, never oh, is. I'll oh, dude, Jack nice to, to see you. <laughs> old man. Yeah, spot a shampoo for my very good friends here, please. Thank Lovely. Por
0: favor. the favor, listen. Yeah,
3: what? what? Uh, I think you'd better wheel it on now, Dave. Right, yeah. Back in good
0: old England. Salute, fellas. Salute. <laughs> listen, I thought you'd get nicked as soon as you trod on the tarmac at Gatwick. Oh, I never left because of the law or two. Oh, I just wanted to turn over a new leaf, that's all.
3: Best thing I ever did. Well, here we are. <laughs> what about
0: that, then, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome home, Jack. Good day.
1: Hey! hey. Oh, there you well, go,
3: gracias, fellas, for turning up here today. Didn't have much choice, didn't we? Ah, oh, it means a great deal to me. Well, I've just got a couple of business calls to make, but uh, in the meantime, help yourselves. We can keep this coming till morning, can't we, Dave? Certainly can. See, <laughs> Jack O'Rag, eh? Business calls, probably dialling the speaking clock. <laughs> I didn't think I'd see him back in England. Well, you wouldn't have missed much, would you? He's all right, is Jacko. He's a bloody menace. That's his shampoo you're drinking. I didn't want to hurt his feelings, did oh. I? But if he starts all that I said to Biggsie and Biggsie
0: said to me, cobblers, I'll have a nervous breakdown. Listen, when I was in the scrubs, Jacko told me to keep me head down and do the bird. If I hadn't shared a Peter with him, I would have been in all sorts of bother. Oh, art of gold. Say no more.
2: he gets back into the country and is and pretending to large it and he's got all this money and he wants to you know buy me a car do this I want to invest and it's all absolute bollocks you know but it's really just because he's homesick you know um, and wants to see everybody again and, and wants a bit of respect and, and and of course everything's changed and I just like that um, I, li- I liked that uh, that's a nice story to write and it, and it worked quite well I think for, when,
1: seeing as you mentioned, oh, sorry. sorry. Seeing as you mentioned that, I'm just wondering, with what you said there, why you ended that episode with him actually going back and kind of
2: the implication being he'll never come back again to England. I think so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I think I think that you know I think that sort of nostalgia uh, is often misplaced, uh, and. Maybe if I was, if I, if I wrote that story now, I would probably come on a bit stronger about that, you know, um, about he's not only is going back to Spain is, you know, again, has to, you know, he's getting away from the law. It's also because it, you know, his memory, it wasn't what he remembered, you know, it had changed. He was no longer, wasn't his home anymore, which I think is, I think it's kind of, there's a kind of truth in that. Yeah, I think. Yeah, we well, also wrote in that episode that his wife had divorced him and moved on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've forgotten that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Well, that—that's exactly. I mean, what? And, and in a way, you know, I mean, I, I, in the back in the day, I did meet a couple of people who had decamps to Spain, you know, and it's kind of. Oh, it's great, as Sun, and you know, I mean, there was that very fantastic film, "Sexy Beast." I was just you know, thinking of you that know, when you said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which kind of, ha- which was about that very thing, and it was always kind of tragic in a way. It was always very sad, yeah. and and there was a kind of they hadn't really kind of they'd moved geographically, but. Mentally, spiritually, whatever you want to call it, they, they hadn't, they were still, you know, stuck in, back in good old England, you know, which of course was not what it was when they left. So you're kind of caught between the two. It's, it's an interesting sort of, you know, anyway. But, um, one of my, uh, I mean, God knows what I think if I saw it now, but I was also very fond of, um, an episode called, um, Dream House, uh, which had Richard Griffiths in it. Uh, and I quite like the sort of, I mean, madness of that, really. And, and, I mean, I said to Linda something like, oh, I want to do a story about what's it like to be the not very attractive, not very talented brother of a famous pop star. I mean, how do you cope with that? And so, and I said, what about if actually the pop star's broke and he's got his big house, Terry's got a babysitter, and the brother turns up, and the mad brother turns up to wreak revenge, you know? So that's how that, and she said, oh, yeah, do that. You know, that's the only conversation we had about that. And, um, and of course, they cast Richard Griffiths in it. That's the first time I met Richard, who I was, and again, it's a bit like getting Pete for it. I thought, oh, fantastic, you know, Richard Griffiths. So I'm very fond of that because then Richard and I went on to work on in the Sky. And um, so that was our first, uh, my first encounter with, with the great man. I'm Derek
3: Farrow. Frankie's brother, manager, accountant, wet nurse, Highly paid toady. And in all of those capacities, I demand to know what you are doing creeping around this house.
0: Well, I'm Terry. Terry McCann.
3: I shall contact the old bill.
0: No, the uh, phone's not working. Put the mockers on the phone, eh? Very clever. No, no, no. Look, look, would I be lumbering around like this if I was turning the place over, eh? Me?
3: I'm an Oxford and Harvard Business School man. I move foreign currencies around like some people move mushy peas. And if I ever find out you're giving me the runaround, sunshine, I shall come down on you like a ton of breeze blocks.
0: Uh, George Silver's the geezer who hired me. Georgie Silver? An errand boy. 10% parasite. How he's got a bottle of iron fire around this house, I do not know. Nonetheless, I am prepared to accept that you are not some itinerant blagger. Oh. Oh, Well, there's something wrong here. There's something... There was another sofa in here last time I looked in this room. Yeah, well, it's on the lawn. Well, no, Well, I fancied sleeping under the stars. Anyway, the arrangements of the furniture is none of your concern. Listen, I'm supposed to be safeguarding this little lot. Uh,
3: well, it's
0: just a brotherly in-joke, you know. It's, uh, it won't damage, I promise. We've rolled on. You? All right, who are you and what you're doing here? Listen, don't think those glass ashtrays you're wearing are going to stop me giving you a slap. So you better start talking. Beam me up, Scotty. Uh,
2: so I'm, I have, uh, you know, affection for that. I mean, it, it's very odd looking back on it, to be honest. And I know they kind of they they crop up on ITV4 now and then. I actually kind of um, avoid watching them because. Uh, I'm fond of the series. I'm very grateful to it. I was very pleased to be part of it, but it's kind of gone. Do you know what I mean? And I don't want to really look at them and be disappointed or uh, see. I mean, I do tend to just see the flaws, you know, in in my stuff when I watch it again. It's quite hard to, you know, I mean, when I say the flaws, I mean my flaws. Uh, I don't mean anybody else that. That's you know, I'm, I'm shaking my head because I'm, I'm wondering how
1: you can see flaws in what appears to be perfect. And, I mean, I can see why. Obviously, like you said your script didn't really change, so everybody agreed that it was mm.
2: pretty perfect. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's just, yeah, stupid. I don't know. Not maybe flaws is the wrong word, but I just, you know, I mean, I suppose it's a bit like looking at a younger version of yourself, you know, and thinking, I'm not, I'm not that somebody else wrote that, you know, because so much time has passed and so much has happened and it's this kind of double edged thing, you know. Goodness, what it must, must be like to be an actor. I can't imagine, you know, if you if you're an actor who's done a lot of stuff and, you know, And there's your younger self, you know, constantly being recycled in movies and TV and stuff. It must be odd. Maybe just get used to it. I don't know. I would find it very odd, I think. Have you found yourself treated as if you're associated with mind by, you know, new work and things? Not really, no. No. Um, Because (laughs) most people that work in TV now are kind of so young, you know. I mean, they weren't born when Minder was. uh... I mean, the show that I'm mostly associated with now is, uh, well, it was Pie in the Sky during the 90s. uh, And now it's Midsummer Murders, you know, because I've done quite a few of those. Um, And, of course, that's still going in some form or other. And, um, but without John Nettles, Um, again... I wrote John Nettle's last Midsummer Murder. I seem to be like Dennis Waterman. I seem to be—I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing to be the kind of uh, <laughs> to be the last writer on the, you know. But that that tends to be what um, what what people think of now, you know.
3: I don't know. You invest in youth, and what do they do?
0: And yesterday, Arthur.
3: Spit in your face. Good morning. I'm disappointed in you, Tracy, of Wine Bar. Where is it? Transylvania?
0: Oh, bloody hell. I'd like to return these. But Don't give them to me. I don't work here anymore, thank God.
3: There's gratitude for you. See you, Terry. Yeah, good luck, love.
0: And don't let the old fart grind you down. <laughs> Would somebody
3: please take these tapes? Uh, yes, give them to my assistant, will you? He's temporarily in charge. No, no, I'm sorry. No, it's nothing to do with me. Oh, by the way, I'm Arthur Daly. It's not often I get the chance to meet our members. Listen, you, I'm not Look, working here. Look, I am here. in a
0: hurry, actually.
3: Oh, don't leave empty handed. We have the new Jack Nicholson.
1: Can I just no. ask you about um, the minder on the Orient Express? Right. Just because, obviously, it was a longer, effectively, like, two episodes long. Yeah. um, Based around, I mean, was the idea from Murder on the Orient Express first, or how did it come together, and how did you write such Uh, a script?
2: Well, that came together because, uh, that was another weird story, really, because, um, Initially, they wanted to make a movie. It was going to be a movie for theatrical release. And uh, I had lunch with Linda Agron, as we used to do quite a lot. And she said, um, "I had an idea." Uh, I said, "Oh yeah, what's that?" She said, "Minder on the Orient Express," which of course immediately made me laugh. You know, I mean, that was it. That was the, you know, it wasn't a story actually, but just Minder on the Orient Express. And she, and she said, how about that for Mind of the Movie, you know, which they want to do. So that's the start of that. So then, then I had to, so we're talking about kind of 90 minutes, you know, 100 minutes or whatever. I can't remember how it was in a, as a movie. Uh, so then I thought, this is great, because I, I would love to pay homage to those kind of, you know, like the original Minder on the Orient Express. I just loved it. I mean, the opening scene where you get kind of, you know, all these kind of movie stars, you get Michael York and Ingrid Bergman and God knows who walking down the platform and, you know, Wendy Hiller as the mad Russian, I don't know, (laughs) you know, and I thought to do a version of that, a Minder version, that would be very amusing, very good fun. But, of course, you've got to have a plot, you know, you've got to get these people on the train for a reason. Uh, and then, in really, really difficult. You know, really hard work. I got halfway through the script and was summoned to Euston Films, and something had been going on at. And this was after Verity Lambert had left, uh, and I think there was a kind of, there was a bit of kind of politicking going on at Euston Films. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, to, to cut a long story short, there was some people there were appalled at the notion the potential expense of Arthur and of George Cole and Dennis Waterman mind arriving in Venice because obviously the climax was going to be Venice because that's where the Orient Express goes now you know so i came out of the meeting and had been told in no uncertain terms that there's no way could we go to Venice okay so <laughs> i had to com- rewrite the, um, you know, the story. And Arthur pulls the emergency call and they get off the train in the Alps, the Alps in Shepherd's Bush somewhere, you know. Um, oh God. I mean, it was really... And, of course, the trouble is that to pay homage or to those kind of big old Hollywood movies, you ain't got the money all the time to really do it properly is that is that is the bottom line so again i haven't looked at that for years i've got no idea what it's like but it was kind of it was that was hard that was hard work i remember i remember one joke from that which i quite like and it's probably the only thing it's the only thing in the film that i remember really is i, I try to do a kind of again another a homage to a night at the opera the Marx Brothers film where they're all where they're in the cabin, they're all sharing this tiny cabin. I don't know if you remember that. And people get keep piling in. Have you not seen that? No. All right. Fantastic. Marks brothers. Check it out one day. There's this whole sequence where there's this tiny cabin on this liner, this ocean liner, and uh, with the Marx Brothers in it. And they're cast, they've got a cast away in there, and waiters and and chefs and people, butlers, keep coming in with stuff until the cat, this tiny cabinet is crammed. So I did a version of that. Everybody crammed me into Arthur Day's compartment on the Orange Express. And um, and there was, I think, Anna Blackman was in it, yeah. I think. And um, she's in the compartment with all these other people. And somebody else turns up with drinks or something. It's getting completely, incredibly crowded. And Arthur says something like, oh, Gordon Bennett. And that, and says, oh, Gordon, is he on the train as well? Hello. Is, isn't that? <laughs> I don't know why. I'm very fond of that, Joe. <laughs> Did you put hair into the? Did you ever suggest who you wanted as, as the actor or actress in in your screen? No, never. 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 I was never involved in anything like that.
1: No. But with her, she obviously took that role the way... Sorry? She took that role the way it was intended,
2: based on what you just said. Oh, yeah, she was great, yeah. yeah. No, I think, I think that, that my rec- I, my memory of that, it was a weird period, and that whole... It was one of those, unlike the... the and, of course, what happened in the end was um, it was never released as a movie uh because I think again I've I've maybe got this wrong they realized that um, the sale if as a TV show, the sale to Australia alone um would would pay for the budget for the thing you know so actually just forgetting about the theatrical release, You know, there's all, I mean, the marketing and getting the prints made for the cinema, all that kind of stuff, you know, forget it, you know, just boom straight to TV, which is probably financially sensible. So it was never a movie. And I think that's probably right, actually. I don't think it was a movie, really. You can't, you know... I mean, the giveaways, we never went to Venice, so, you know, limited resources. uh, And it probably would have looked... Um, not because people weren't doing their best, but just purely down for money, really, probably would have looked a bit thin on the cinema screen, So, yeah, it became TV, it went out on TV.
1: Well, thank you for all your time, Andrew, really appreciate
2: it. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, you know, it's difficult um, talking about something that happened so long ago, really. Uh, uh, It's quite... It's weird, you know, I had to go just before we started, I had to go on the IMDB and see how many I wrote and see what they were called, you know, because really my memory was quite, was not very clear, you know, but so, no, it's interesting to talk about it.
0: You should have seen him when he came out. He said, have there been any great technological advances while I've been away? (laughs) How
3: long were you inside for, Arthur? You can lock a man up, but you cannot imprison his spirit. It's up here. If you got it up here, incarceration means nothing. An hour and a half. He was banged up for an hour and a half. Surely you had a right result, thanks to Terry. Yeah, 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 true, true, true. Once Terry didn't make a pig's ear of it. Oh, cheers, Arthur! Oh, we got out of that a treat. No problem. Yeah, no problem.
1: My sincere thanks once again to Andrew Payne and his agent Lydia Drake for taking the time to organise the interview as well as all the time Andrew spent talking to me. Thanks also to Jonathan from Minder.org for additional questions. Next time we will have a very different type of episode featuring some interesting and unusual facts about the show. As a teaser, here is a strange spot of trivia for you to accompany the Andrew Payne episodes. In researching as much as I could about him, I read an interview with Andrew where he mentioned a Turkish Kurdish restaurant that he frequents called Jem. I must say he did tell me later though that it's not quite as good as it used to be. Anyway, before I knew this I couldn't resist looking it up, and when looking at the street view what should I find directly opposite the restaurant but Montague solicitors? Remember Mr Sayin? That is the part played by Lee Montague, the potential Arthur Daly who Andrew mentioned in the first interview. And here, opposite Andrew's then favourite restaurant, is Montague Solicitors. What are the odds? Possibly only odds that The Wizard of Odds could have come up with. Thank you to everyone who's written in. If you want to write to the show, the email is winchesterclub at minderpodcast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.